0: The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. Project Line is a national collaborative led by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, to provide infection control training and education to frontline health care workers and public health personnel. AMA has partnered with Project First Line, as supported through Cooperative Agreement, CDC, RFA, CK20, 2003. The American Urological Association is proud to collaborate with AMA and Project First Line in this educational activity. CDC is an agency within the Department of Health and Human Services (HHS). The contents of this event do not necessarily represent the policies of the CDC or HHS, and should not be considered an endorsement by the federal government.
1: Good morning. My name is Jay Raman, and I am professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another one of our episodes in our podcast series with this specific podcast titled Infectious Complications Following Prostate Biopsy Strategies for Reducing Infections and Reducing Healthcare Costs. It's really my pleasure to host Dr. Butter Mian. Uh, As our guest for this podcast, Dr. Mian is a professor of urology at Albany Medical Center. He's a urological oncologist who really um, works in the entire realm of urologic oncology, but uh, as he and I have talked over time, has had a real interest in uh, the concept of diagnostics for prostate cancer, namely prostate biopsy, and as we'll talk a little bit more in this show Uh, will even share some of his own experience as being one of the very few persons that has actually done a a randomized trial in this setting. So, uh, Butter, first of all, uh, always great to have you. I know we talked last year on this uh, programming. Delighted to have you back. And again, thanks again for your time.
2: Well, good morning, and thanks so much for having me. This is a pleasure to be here. Uh, This is a very pertinent, important topic that we're discussing. It has wide implications, so I'm glad we had this opportunity to discuss it.
1: Well, that's great. So, I mean, I, I think before we maybe dive into the episode itself, let's um, maybe just talk a little bit about maybe what, uh, what are we going to be covering? What are our listeners uh, uh, hopefully look forward to hearing about from you over the next 30 minutes or so? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: you know, the infections uh, uh, are taking center stage, not only in urology, but in, in all aspects of uh, medical care. Uh, there is mobility and cost that goes along with it so we're going to discuss what uh, type of infections can occur following prostate biopsy um, you know major and minor what are the uh, cost implications um, in terms of uh, money spent on it but also resources that are spent on uh, taking care of infections post procedure Uh, then we'll identify certain aspects of the procedure uh, prostate biopsy procedure that can be perhaps modified to reduce the risk of infection and these may include how we utilize antibiotics, uh, antiseptics, and in fact, some procedural details uh, that can be modified uh, to reduce the risk of infections.
1: That's great. So let's maybe just, let's start with the first of these, which is really, um, you know, at a really high level when we talk about biopsies after, uh, uh, I mean, infections after prostate needle biopsy. Talk to us a little bit about um, h- how do we define uh, a post-biopsy infection um, and, and does that maybe itself pose some of the challenges when we read the literature as as we look at infections post-procedure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely.
2: I think that's a key point uh, to start off with is that what is a post transrectal prostate biopsy infection? Uh, what does it look like to different people? Now, sepsis is often used interchangeably with infection. Now we know that infection uh, can be mild, can be even subclinical, asymptomatic, versus all the other extreme of the spectrum, which is sepsis. Now sepsis has distinct criteria. We, we just can't call every infection sepsis. Sepsis has definition, you have to meet certain criteria. Uh, so for example, someone who has dysuria and requires antibiotics is an infection, uh, but that is not sepsis. So when we go through the literature, and it's very you know, revealing and, and you, We may not know until we kind of dive uh, deep into it uh, that these terms have been used interchangeably, even within the same manuscripts. If you read paper, the the title may use the word sepsis and the rest of the paper has no mention of sepsis definition, for example. So I think I think that's the key. The rates of infection as a catch all term vary quite broadly within the literature. for transrectal biopsy, and that's what we're discussing mostly transrectal, and we'll, we'll touch on transperineal as one of the mitigating factors.
1: Right. So, so you know, with that in hand, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Um, um, as you sort of broadly alluded to, uh, there, there are different ways that we can uh, really obtain a biopsy of the prostate. One, transrectal, whereby we're sampling essentially through a probe in the rectal vault, and we're transversing across the rectal mucosa into the prostate, and obviously transperineal where the probe is still in the rectal vault, but the sampling mechanism is, is really through the perineum. Um, maybe talk, let's start with transrectal, because I think really in practice, by and large, that is the more common um, uh, approach that people use for biopsying. What are the infection rates after transrectal prostate biopsy? If you
2: look at individual center uh, reports, they vary so broadly, I can tell you, less than 1% to 13, 14%. Well, that's a 13-fold difference in infections. So the, it can be difficult to wrap your head around it. You know, how can that be? How is it possible? And a lot of that has to do with definitions and how the data is captured. Is it prospectively captured data? Is it retrospective? And what was the intent of the um, of this study? As we all know, that the intent of the study can color how we present the data. Uh, I think that plays a role in it. Um, the rates of um, sepsis, on the other hand, are different. rates so of sepsis range from zero to three percent, and most of those are retrospective studies, uh, or the prospective ones are, are single-center. So the, that has been difficult to come by, mainly because randomized control studies have been lacking. Even the studies of transrectal prostate biopsy that are evaluating different strategies, are not randomized. Most of those are consecutive series, uh, antibiotic A versus antibiotic B and C, for example, or measure A versus measure B. Uh, so data is is all over the place. Often used rate of transrectal prostate biopsy related infection is three to 4% or three to 5%. Uh, but that gets conflated with sepsis. Uh, that is not the rate of sepsis. Uh, very few people have a published rate that high, but it often gets uh, conflated. Uh, as being sepsis. So that is a key point i like to make at every discussion that I have uh, for the last few years is that let's make sure that we're using the right terminology uh, because if the rate of sepsis is really three to four to five percent, that could be, that's a crisis, right? I mean, that's very high. We don't expect sure. that or accept such a high rate. So the rates of three to five percent of post transectal prostate biopsy infection is fairly commonly uh, understood um, to be what's out there. Now, this is Primarily based on um, observational studies, sure. Not for much randomized controlled trials.
1: What about um, uh, transperineal? And, and I feel like you know some of the early reports were zero percent um, uh, infection rate and obviously zero percent sepsis rate. But but maybe maybe that's not entirely accurate. Maybe give us a sense of of the transperineal route. Right.
2: I think zero percent rate of infection for transperineal had been promoted. You know, in publications and social media and in discussion. And it turns out that's like a 0%, it's like a mythical rate. Uh, it is virtually impossible to get 0% because even the clean procedures that are done under sterile conditions don't have 0% infection, right? So there's some percentage. Uh, as that has become uh, more uh, widely available, more folks have utilized the transparent perineal route, but we're seeing more infections. Um, UK study where they looked at, retrospectively, looked at folks who had been performing transrectal biopsies, and they noticed that the rate of possible infection defined as fever and or need for antibiotics after biopsy done through the transperial route, three to 4%. That's very different than 0%. Now maybe, again, the terminology of sepsis versus infection gets conflated, yes those were near near zero percent sepsis not exactly zero uh, but the infection rate if you use uniform definition turned out that in a large uk study from 10 centers over 1200 patients was three to four percent that seems somewhat similar to what we see on the average for transrectal biopsy again not sepsis but infections um, so there too what we're learning uh, that the rates are becoming variable and that is a bit of a measure of how the data is uh, defined and
1: then captured. Sure, sure. So um, you know, obviously, we've spoken a lot thus far about uh, observational and retrospective data, and and uh, w- you know, we're going to finish the program uh, obviously talking a little bit more about um, you know what I always consider the holy grail of of data, which is you know randomized prospective trials, and and we're going to speak a little bit about your trial and certainly some of the data out of the multi trial, but. Before we get into sort of those head-to-head comparisons, let's just take a little bit of time and talk a little bit more about um, uh, mechanisms and methods by which um, um, uh, modalities can be altered or, and preventative measures can be taken to decrease the likelihood of infection. So let's, I mean, we're gonna focus this section maybe mostly on transrectal mm-hmm. biopsy because I think a lot of these strategies are are most relevant in that domain. And and honestly, it still remains uh, probably the dominant approach that is used in clinical practice. So talk to us a little bit about, um, the first question I'm going to ask you about is the concept of targeted antibiotics versus empiric antibiotics. What what does that exactly mean? And and what is some of the data uh, behind that?
2: Right. Well, it's very germane because uh, I would estimate about 80% of the biopsies in the country are performed transrectally. What uh, uh, you know? The, what spawned this idea of target biopsy was the, uh, the fact that nearly a quarter to a third of bacterial flora in the rectum were resistant to our commonly used antibiotics, namely fluoroquinolone. We, we, ha- we have had a love affair with you know with cipro and levofloxin for since I was a resident. So we have overutilized those medications, uh, abused at the, uh, to some extent. Uh, not just us. I mean, I would like to take a lot of the blame for it as in urology. But at some point, we have to, you know, look at the 10,000-foot oh, oh, uh, view that we are, in fact, a small part of the antibiotic abuse chain. Uh, there's a lot more that happens before uh, we get in the game and also after, you know, farming in the industry, food chain, uh, primary care uh, uh, field, et cetera. But from our realm, we identify that there are bacteria in the rectum that are resistant. Now, how do we cover it? So trans uh, uh, rectal biopsy, uh, you know, the prep for that included uh, empiric antibiotic, which was mostly cipro. Some people use other antibiotics, gentamicin, etc. Rectal culture using a, a cotton swab, tar, uh, you know, culturing that and identifying the bacteria that are present and whether those are resistant to or sensitive to the commonly used antibiotics is called target biopsy. So based on the culture of the um, of the rectal content. Uh, we could identify the most appropriate antibiotic and and hope to reduce the risk of infection. Uh, and that had a lot of promise when it, when it first came out. Uh, m- more recently, the data is suggesting that the difference between empiric antibiotics and the target antibiotics has diminished. And it's not clear exactly why that is. Again, some of this may have to do with how the studies are devised and, and reported. Uh, so target antibiotics made sense, right? I mean, it, it made all the sense and many folks did it. We had a sort of a national experiment in our system. We had one hospital across the street, which is the Veterans Hospital, were performing transrectal um, biopsies after rectal culture using target approach. And the other hospital, we were not. So when we looked at the uh, the results, we found no major difference. Meaning despite target antibiotic Utilization, the rates were not that much lower. That may be because our baseline rates were not that much higher to begin with. So the baseline rate may have something to do with how much of uh, impact you can make by use, you know, doing your uh, intervention, whatever that is. Uh, so many folks uh, uh, stand by it; they still use it. We are, we were on the fence, and we have not switched to that approach. Uh, our approach uh, remains unchanged for the last. A good fifteen years. In fact, two thousand seven is when we use a current regimen, and we have not escalated it. Which is one of the one of the problems is that uh, we can keep adding on more antibiotics, and there's antibody uh, sort of stewardship that comes into play here. We cannot just keep uh, adding on more and more antibiotics. Sure. um,
1: And, And that sort of brings sort of to the related. We've talked a little bit about targeted versus empiric. Uh, the concept of maybe adding on antibiotics is, is you know broadly you know the concept of augmentation and and you know maybe your thoughts on that and, and you know obviously there's different combinations of augmentation. You could do an oral and then period procedure give uh, a parenteral, whether it's IV or IM, you could give multiple IV or IM agents. So what, what's your sort of broad thoughts on augmented regimens?
2: So the augmentation can be, you know, heavily augmented or broadly augmented. Our approach from 2007 onwards has been one tablet of Cipro and one tablet of Bactrim before and then later that evening, one day coverage. We started made that change and we're not sure exactly why, but there was, I believe, one case where, you know, there was one sensitive bug that was sensitive to one, not the other but this has been so long ago, so we can't really tell you exactly how, but this was pre-augmentation era. What I mean by that is before augmented antibiotics became in vogue, uh, we made that change. Other folks have utilized a combo of IV or intramuscular injection plus oral antibiotics. Others have increased the duration. Our duration, uh, both on the clinical trial and clinical practice is single day. Okay, one day's worth of oral antibiotics and no parenteral, or we use parenteral IM injection only and no oral. But in many circumstances, both academic centers and community practices, small and large practices, uh, they use combination of parenteral plus oral, and oral is often three days. Mm -hmm. In my view, that should not be necessary uh, because past that initial, uh, trauma, the insult of the biopsy, past 24 hours, there should be no benefit, no need for it. And we'll learn that. We'll learn that from a lot of former studies. So augmentation has worked to reduce the rate of infection in many situations. Uh, it's just a matter of how, aug- you know, quote unquote augmented you want to be. And if you end up using three antibiotics, I think that's time to take a pause. Yeah. Go yeah. back and see what is it that we're doing, requiring three antibiotics, and others doing using one antibiotics, and have the same or better results.
1: Yeah, I think I think you're totally right, and, and you know I think you raised a great comment, which is really when one looks at augmentation, it's not just the number of antibiotic therapies, but it's the duration of therapy. And and I think I can't remember, but I think even part of the the AUA Choosing Wisely yeah. campaign is is really 24 hours. Uh, Uh, At the most, if I recall correctly. And so this concept of three days and five days, um, to be perfectly honest, even if you're using a single antibiotic and you're not augmenting, I would argue three days and five days, as you alluded to, are are too much. What about... um, maybe some procedural type modifications that you can do. I mean, I, I think, um, I mean, I've written a little bit on it, but others have certainly talked about uh, the concept of, um, you know, iodine rectal preparation, um, uh, maybe uh, formalin or alcohol on the on the needle. Uh, talk, uh, sort of that's distinct, to be honest, than, than some of the antibiotic stuff. Talk a little bit about that, and then maybe we'll change gears uh, and, right. and sort of move on to some of the procedural elements.
2: Right, right. I, mean, I, I mean, as we know, to um, destroy bacteria, you can use antibiotics or antisepsis, right? I mean, that, that's pretty well. Uh, rectal antisepsis seems like a fairly simple thing to do. Uh, now, when I was a fellow in Houston, standard rectal prep used to be a neomycin enema. Hmm. You know, patients there were coming from uh, different uh, cities. They would, you know, they would come in, they didn't have the prep, so they would come in, and they would get a neomycin enema, as opposed to a Fleet's enema. Right? So it's not a new concept, and then you've written about it. Others have written about it and validated your approach of uh, using powered-down rectal prep, reduces the risk of infection to quite low and sepsis extremely low. Uh, other measures that we utilize is to cleanse the needle. I mean, why not? I mean, it, it takes literally two seconds to cleanse the needle. Uh, we don't. We have again. You know, you have to look at your your rates and see what needs to change. But if your rates go up, that's certainly something that's easy enough to do. Formalin, I think alcohol is just as good. Uh, you know, you know whatever you need. Some cleansing of the needle between procedures, and then using rectal uh, prep. Now, rectal prep. There used to be a gel, iodine gel, uh, was available. You know, in the hospitals, which is which uh, is no longer being produced. Uh, that can be utilized as opposed to um, regular KY jelly, for example, uh, to reduce the. Uh, the bacterial count, you know, in the end, it's not just any bacteria, right? It's the count. It's Mm a load of bacteria that's transferred to cause infection. So the goals here are to reduce the bacterial load in the the rectum and any potential transfer. So those measures have been very successful. And I would look at those measures before I change to broader antibiotic coverage, for example.
1: Sure, sure.
2: As opposed to adding a second or third antibiotics, I would say that that's a more appropriate way to reduce the risk of infection than to go back to adding more antibiotics because that will fly in the face of antibiotic stewardship.
1: Sure. So if we just look at um, both transrectal and transperineal, so TR and TP, what are some of the procedural steps that can potentially increase the risk of infection?
2: Right. So, I mean, you know, it's a manipulation, right? In the end, it's how you manipulate and how you hold uh, the instruments and how you interact with the tissue tissue handling um, is a key component of a uh, good surgical technique. We know that, right? Well, tissue handling is just as important for non-surgical procedures. You know, transrectal prostate biopsy has been sort of been under dignified for many years, case it's become a you know, sort of very routine office procedure. And we have, I think, failed to provide proper training in how to manipulate the probe and how to use needles, how to take samples. Because if I'm not mistaken, there has not been a course on transrectal prostate biopsies in, in years, if not decades. All right. So my pitch to, uh, to Office of Education would be to look <laughs> into that uh, to, because the vast majority of the country and the world is, in fact, performing transrectal prostate biopsies. So there is perhaps an opportunity to look at some procedural steps that could be modified to reduce risk of infection. Now, you know, probe insertion itself can cause trauma. And more, you move it. You know, probe has a it has a it has needle guide on it, so it's not a perfectly rounded probe. Rectal mucosa and bowel mucosa is delicate. We know this when we do, let's say, cystectomy, and you look at the bowel. You know that any needle needle uh, 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 that touches the mucosa causes some bleeding. So probe handling uh, can reduce the trauma, which can reduce bacterial, you know, bleeding and bacterial transfer. Um, I've seen, and this is some of you know what I've seen from personal observation of not only trainees, but also trained urologists. Make sure that the lidocaine is going into the periprostatic tissue and not in the rectal wall. <coughs> if you inject anything in the rectal wall, it's going to create a dead space, create a, you know, a potential nidus for bacteria to get in it. Uh, and it shouldn't be that this happens frequently, but it does, I've seen it more than <coughs> two visions. Um, And the key feature, and too bad we don't have videos to share, when the needle, the the biopsy gun, is deployed, let's make sure that the the mechanism that takes sample is past rectal wall. If we fired the gun before the distal tip, it's about two to three millimeter tip that doesn't take sample. It's a solid core tip. If if that is not past the rectal wall, it's possible that, that you've taken some biopsy of the rectal wall itself out of 12 to 15 cores it only has to happen once right it doesn't and out of the the 10 you did in a month and and then 120 in a year you can imagine that uh, the potential for rectal wall trauma can result in uh, again bacterial transfer that's more readily uh, likely to happen result in inf- infection mm-hmm. um the so there this is where some of this uh, the risk of infection may increase from one setting, from one operator to the other operator. So there may be operator-dependent differences uh, as a point I'm trying to make is that although many of us are well-trained, we like to train our trainees as best we can, but having observed some of these uh, technical shortcomings uh, has piqued my interest uh, in trying to maybe educate the operators uh, where they can kind of change their technique to avoid these
1: complications. And what about for, so we've talked a a few of the different elements for transrectal, and I think you highlighted a few key points, which is uh, ultimately uh, move the probe less uh, just to avoid rectal trauma, obviously injecting the lidocaine in the appropriate location and, and avoiding biopsying the rectal wall. Talk a little bit about, what about for transperineal biopsy? Um, are there any steps that potentially can increase the risk of infection? And then I'll ask you, uh, maybe the, the last question is, um, after you're done, um, you know, compression on the rectal mucosa and and the impact of that. Right. So the,
2: for the transperineal, you know, in our setting, we just started from day one under sedation. Uh, I mean, without sedation, just with local anesthesia. And it varies quite a bit. I don't, uh, several places where they still use uh, sedation, anesthesia has become less necessary, uh, but depends on your setup, right? It is very feasible to do this biopsy under local anesthesia, but there's no question about it that there is more pain during the procedure, especially the first half of the procedure. Uh, so doing it under local anesthesia also means that you, the patient uh, sort of may have pain, may move around the probe manipulation still applies, right? The rectum mucosa is delicate, just the same. It, that doesn't change. The complications of infection for, for transperineal may be due to colonization of the, of the prosthetic tissue. I mean, we, we know, we've we seen patients with stones and concretions and patients may be colonized. Some have catheterization, et cetera. So some of the same basic principles apply. Uh, avoid the urethra. One of the ways that we have seen uh, in the trial post transparent process bat, uh, infection rather is due to urinary complications leading to infection so somebody who goes into retention uh, maybe cause that infection or vice versa so try to avoid urinary complications avoid the urethra uh identify patients who who may need coverage You know, often we've been doing the transparent vaccine without coverage with antibiotics. We have used sometimes antibiotics, but you can select out patients who may be colonized, who have catheterization or have a history of infections. So do give them antibiotics, for example, as opposed to not giving antibiotics to anybody. So the basic principles are the same. The rate of bacterial transfer from rectum to the prostate is low, but turns out that a lot of patients who have post-transrectal biopsy don't have prostatitis. So the infection probably happens not from the bacteria going to the prostate, but rather right into the bloodstream. How could that happen? And that brings me to back to the you know question you asked about the transrectal and 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 uh, avoiding the rectal wall, uh, and manipulation of the probe. The distance between the right base lateral biopsy and the right mid lateral biopsy is about one centimeter. So I will see trainees and trained uh, urologists to move the probe all over the place. So if you, if you know what the next biopsy is, all you have to move the probe is by a centimeter, really, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe one and a half. That's about the extent of manipulation. So what I've been doing post transrectal biopsy since I was a trainee, that's of we're trained is to remove the probe at the end and insert digital uh, finger into the rectum and apply manual compression with the finger not with a probe. So what I've learned and many of uh, the people that used to work with me is that they are in fact, you feel bumps on the rectal mucosal wall. What are those? What well, turns out, and we confirmed that with the GI colleagues who do colonoscopies, that when you poke the rectal muc- mucosa with a the needle, there's going to be small hematomas. And I just did a recent experiment, thought experiment in the last month or so. I just quantified out of 10 biopsies, I can feel at least in four or five patients who have transrectal biopsies some bumpy rectal mucosa that creates a hematoma uh, that becomes a nidus for infection and may result in infection or sepsis and that's why one of the reasons why we don't see prostatitis as a complication even though patients may have infection Mm. so there's other mechanisms for bacterial transfer which are not direct from the rectal rectum to the prostate tissue necessarily. It could be the in-between, the phase in-between where hematomas are created. So I compress those for, for 60 seconds. It's a long 60 seconds. You know, you want to get in and out. So I make sure that if 30 seconds on each side, compress that. It stops the bleeding also. And I believe it's a key, one of the key factors in reducing the risk of infection post transrectal biopsy
1: very practical very, very practical point there so you know we, we sort of kicked off um, talking a little bit about the retrospective data and, and some of the challenges associated with that um, maybe talk to us about your trial and, and other um, trials that are either uh, just recently completed or, or in the queue and, right. and again I, I think you know the value of these are these are really um, randomized prospective trials and so uh, I always say the data is the data. And um, and I think that it's valuable for our listeners to know what these prospective trials are showing. So go ahead. Tell us a little bit about your trial and, and others that are out there.
2: See, like everybody else, you know, we're converting, we're, we're thinking of converting to transparent meal, um, because that was the trend. And everybody who the you know, experts in the field were talking about that. So, so we decided, OK, well, we're going to have to look at that. But all we did was just not just convert, but rather plan a study around it. So we did a randomized study, 763 patients were randomized, 718 completed. And we noticed that there was no, in fact, there was no sepsis in either group. So that's one of the key features uh, We then looked at infection. Infection we defined very broadly, including fever, uh, as well as antibiotics without documented infection. So if, for example, a patient calls, in the middle of the night, you know, gets a hold of my colleague who knows that patient had a biopsy now has, uh, you know, some dysuria or maybe feels warm. They may get antibiotics because that's not a time to get culture, etc. So we looked at antibiotic utilization as a real event, and and also fever. You know, fever. Somebody calls for fever, and they're going to get antibiotics. This has sometimes it happens in practice because you cannot wait for it, or they cannot come to the clinic or go to the ER. So broadly defined infection rate, you know, two point six percent versus two point seven percent. So no no real difference. Um, The similarly the rate of non-infection. You know, we also looked at the hemorrhagic. There's a concern about transrectal biopsy resulting in more um, uh, rectal bleeding episodes, uh, requiring intervention, or for transperineal retention of urine. You know, it's been published that urinary retention is a is a complication falling transperineal. we did not see that either so for both of the commonly expected um, complications did not occur uh, so the rate we found to be not really different the difference is that we did use one day or single dose of antibiotics for transrectal procedures and we rarely used antibiotics for transperineal except if the provider thought the patient was at risk, for example, those who have a catheter in place, right, or those who have had infection. So some of those may have received antibiotics for transperineal. Now compared to the other randomized clinical trial, which is not published yet, but um, well, ours is published, it's in general urology. The other trial uh, is in, um, it's, it's being evaluated for publication. It was presented by Dr. Jim Hu at the SUO meeting um, a couple of weeks ago. So their definition of infection is different. Uh, is uh, it's l- less broad, is more defined, but they also reported a uh, similar risk of infection post transrectal and transperineal biopsy. The rates were zero percent for transperineal and 1.4 percent for transrectal, but these, these are not sepsis, these are infection, and mostly all of those were, uh, were non uncomplicated UTIs. Uh, we're not sure whether they they have a, a documented UTI as their uh, outcome, uh, because it's not published yet, but this is just from the presentation. So statistically, there was no difference uh, in the post transrectal and post transparent prostate biopsy for, in both trials. And the key thing to remember is that the sepsis rate for almost 800 patients in two trials was zero still.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The right. so infection rate, if you call it, um, now in fact, we did our, an, another sort of sensitivity analysis, and we redefined our primary outcome that was more restrictive like the European definition or, or like the definition used in the other multicenter trial. And our rate is 1.4% versus 1.7%. So similar, uh, no matter how we look at it, All right. So this creates a situation where, you know, the the randomized clinical trial data challenges the belief, the dogma. Now in general, it makes sense, you know, if you avoid the rectum, there should be less infection. Uh, but the, the decrease in infection, at least in two trials, was not detectable.
1: Mm-hmm. What about, um, are, are there any other trials on the on the horizon um, that are maybe coming in the queue?
2: Right. So the, the multi-center U.S. trial uh, led by Cornell and Dr. Who, that's being expanded uh, because the rate of infection was too low um lower than the pre-estimation uh, so that has to be expanded uh, the there's a uk trial uh, called the translate trial led by richard Bryan and uh, azure lamb their primary outcome interest is not infection really uh, theirs is more about cancer detection rates but as a secondary analysis they will look at the uh, trans uh, the, bio, the infection rates between the two procedures. And they'll have about 1,100 uh, some patients. Uh, a, there is a, another trial, French trial. Uh, there too, the primary outcome was not defined as infectious complication, but rather uh, cancer detection rates. But they're also going to look at infection. So the, the two main trials, they had predefined infectious complication as the main primary outcome are just ours the probe pc trial and the uh the cornell uh trial that's funded by the uh, by nih and p corey um, so there'll be more data coming forward but turns out that the um, the rate of infections which are reported are thought to be you know the the, the truth for example may or may not be true for both procedures
1: yeah yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, as I said, I think your trial and, and the multicenter trial really give us some objective uh, data. You know, I always think about, you know, the, the key things we probably all really at the end of the day want to know is is infections. And I think, you know, the big ticket item there, as you've alluded to, is sepsis. I mean, that's, that's really when you think about sort of the, the, um, the event that you want to avoid, I think, obviously, as you mentioned, some of the new trials or newer trials are looking at cancer detection rate, which I think is a very reasonable question. I think pain and tolerability would be, you know, I think a secondary endpoint of many of these trials, but I think, you know, th- those are important. And, th- and the last one is honestly, um, a- as you know, um, a prostate biopsy is, is reimbursed at the rate of a prostate biopsy. So there are the, the dollars and cents of when you look at different approaches. Um, um, Although it should not be the dictating factor, it has to be a factor that looks at the time, the cost, um, because ultimately, whether it's MRI fusion, whether it's non-MRI fusion, whether it's TP versus TR, um, it's still a prostate biopsy, and that is what we are able to essentially bill and code for, irrespective of how long or how involved that procedure is.
2: Definitely. The the time it takes... To do transrectal versus transperineal, the transparent almost doubles the, the time requirement for that procedure. It may not be all your time, but the the utilization of their space for the biopsy, as well as your time, uh, almost doubled. Uh, and if there's a true benefit to it, it, makes no difference. We do it. You know, we do things anyway. Uh, the biopsy utilizing MRI fusion also doubles your time, but the payment is about the same.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: There's no additional code. Or payment, but we do it because it's the right thing to do. Right. Uh, is more precision to the fusion-guided biopsy, so we do the fusion. We absorb the cost and our time, and do it, and because there's there was reason to do it. For the trans rectal versus transperineal, uh, unless some very compelling data comes comes around, this whole idea of a wholesale conversion to a procedure which hasn't really shown to be that much better very little difference. If there's any difference at all, we didn't see any difference. And then add on the additional pain, uh, morbidity and the cost uh, would have to be justified.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, Butter, I, I just wanna really thank you. It's it's always uh, great to have you on. I I, I feel that there, there are not a lot of people that will take questions like this and, and actually do the rigors of doing studies and investigations. So we obviously always appreciate, your your thoughts and and obviously everything that you uh you contribute to to the field
2: well thank you so much jay this is a pleasure uh to be uh, with you and uh get a chance to talk about this important uh you know these are everyday daily clinical uh practice questions and hopefully uh we can educate uh some of our colleagues
1: uh for our audience we thank you very much for your time and your attention uh for more information i would encourage you to visit us at auanet.org slash university. And we will have Dr. Mian's trial, uh, the publication for at link there, just so that those that are interested can uh, read more about it. Uh, but I hope you have a great day. Again, thanks so much for joining. Really appreciate it.
2: Thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you.